Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, 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 greetings and felicitations, children of technology. We have the killing technology. Well, maybe not us, but someone does somewhere. Anyway, welcome to Agitators Anonymous, episode 113. I am Alan Averill, your hostess with the leastest. Well, indeed. So, festival season is kind of about to um, descend upon us. Hellfest is this weekend. Um, with its absolutely insane lineup. Primordial is playing on Friday, so I'm recording this a couple of days early. And I think, you know, Primordial's schedule is not that hectic over the next couple of months. Maybe 10 festivals overall. I think the most we ever did was 20-something. <clears throat> we ain't a Rotten Christ or we ain't a Marduk or, I don't know, lots of other bands I see doing big summer tours, Blood Incantation, etc., etc., whomever. But it's something. And it's all starting in earnest again. Of course, now, if you've been listening to a couple of episodes of the podcast ago, I discussed um, at the back end of the tour diary about how things were changing considerably for bands and all of the insane costs. But this got me thinking about a few comments um, people had made on YouTube, a few other bits and pieces, a few other quite informed questions um, uh, people were asking me, uh, one of which was, how do I think that um musicians the job of musicians their day to day the requirements placed upon them have changed since the 70s 80s 90s and up to now and of course i wasn't around to be a musician in the 70s and the 80s so all my um <clears throat> i suppose my references for them are anecdotal speaking to people who were musicians back then having worked within the industry for decades talking to people who were doing the equivalent of when I was working A&R, doing my job in 1978 or 82 or whomever else. There was enough anecdotal references and references from people to gain, or, you know, you read biographies, all that kind of thing, to have some insight into how the music industry has changed. And, of course, I was there in the 90s and the noughties and the 2010s and all that kind of thing. So I just thought it might be interesting to take a kind of ramble. Um, yes, I haven't used that word in a while. Across... 
um, some of the different requirements, some of the, the things that have changed. Um, of course, yes, I know the Internet, um, online, this, that and the other. I mean, that's the huge, that's the biggest thing to discuss. But I'm not I'm not going to try and discuss that head on and get into Napster and all that kind of stuff and file trading and Spotify and all of that kind of thing. I think we all know by now how it changed the game. But there's a couple of other nuanced things and quite interesting observations that I thought might make an um, a listenable episode 113, a quite interesting 113. No, it probably won't change your life. Well, it may do, but it probably won't. Unless, of course, you're driving to this and you happen to um, crash or something and it is playing in the background while you're busy um, with your face being pummeled into an airbag somewhere and then someone finds you and goes, well, I hope it was not that the ridiculous um, misinformation with which you were um, hourly imbibing from this fool, this charlatan, this Mr. Averill, this singer in a heavy metal band. Well, anyway, yes. Episode 113. You can follow me on Instagram, nemthiango underscore primordial. There's no agitators anonymous. Uh, Instagram, I just couldn't bring myself to um, be in charge of another um, Instagram, something else to death scroll through and waste my life on so you'll have to follow me at nemthianga underscore primordial primordial underscore official of course but do remember the podcast is my voice it is not the podcast of primordial and any views expressed herein by by the grown man child of nemthianga which means he of the evil tongue are not those expressed necessarily by the other tyrants in primordial the other grumpy old men anyway so you can also go over to patreon.com um, slash Alan Averill to support the show for as little as a dollar a month, primarily because I don't really understand how the tiers work and all that kind of stuff. Um, cool stuff going on there. Some, um, you know, chats, conversations, uh, demos, rehearsals, other things. And with, with the festival season kind of starting, I think there's going to be a few interesting little videos, backstage bits that I'm going to be able to make, which initially was my plan with the podcast. Um I recorded, I guess, a test or a pilot podcast maybe four or five years ago, and that was when you had access every summer to lots of different musicians at um, festivals. And I thought, all right, this is going to be something like a, a video chat channel or something like this. And that's kind of um, that's kind of where the idea came from, a sort of backstage chat with somebody going, you have the gift of the gab. Now, I'm not entirely sure of that. There are other Irishmen I know who have a greater gift of the gab than I, um, that is for sure. But some part of that commentary seemed to make sense, which was here is something which you kind of need to. And I hate this word because I think it's going to be used against an awful lot of us um, in the employment sector is you need to pivot. Um, you know, it's a case of teaching an old dog new tricks. Or a further new trick that does not pay yet. Indeed. Anyway. Which brings me to another comment, which is if you do wish to sponsor the podcast, get in touch, slide into my DMs. Um, the listener figures are well over, I don't know, 220,000 or something, 200 and something thousand. Um, so there is a captive audience there. Like I said, if you own a an offshore um, munitions factory or a uranium mining plant, or maybe you own a coltan mine, um, you know, and you need some nimble little fingers trafficked in, well, let's get on it. No, of course not. Um, if you run a mail order or you're printing some shirts or something like this, or maybe you run a tattoo shop, there we go. Anyway, so I thought it would be kind of interesting to take a look 
at um, the difference in being a musician right now in 2022 and what it was back in the day. Now, as I said, I have some experience of the different decades, um, but, um, you know, anecdotal ones or, you know, first-hand, second-hand stories from people who were back there in the day. Um, But it's primarily about the way things were based on conversations with plenty of people who worked in the industry back then. Biographies, podcast with older musicians and anecdotes. Um, oddly enough, if you do look through the top um, podcasts, the top 200 or something, is very few or very, very few are done by musicians. They're mostly the preserve um, of uh, comedians or kind of like not really comedians, but YouTube sketch comedians um, who've just transferred very easily into the podcast world. Uh, somewhere about as inane as it can get. I really am incredibly surprised at how um, just random bus chats with people who don't have much to say can somehow, you know, peak at the top of the charts. But I suppose this points to the um, the level of loneliness that we all have in the year 2022. You forgot the lockdown and the pandemic and how you were all told to stay inside. But there is something maybe there for another podcast which speaks to how um, isolated people are that they listen to podcasts, to other people speaking, to have some company, so to speak. Anyway, bad company. Who can deny? Anyway, first things first, there's no particular order to these observations. Um, There's no particular script. They kind of are as you will, as I'm sort of free fall thinking um, about them. Um, Just whatever came into my mind at the moment. They're not chronological and you might find I jump around the timeline, but hopefully it makes some sense. And some of this was prompted by a friend of mine saying to me that um, these days, and well, this might have even changed post-pandemic, but 25% of a musician's career um, or the time they spent is devoted to songwriting or at least the craft of songwriting. Um, Of course, there's no particular study about this or no particular statistic to point to. It's more sort of anecdotal, but I think there's some truth to it. Um, And that is that 25% of things these days are really about the craft of the song. And the 75% is self-promotion or social media presence, which really means that the great portion of somebody's time is spent in trying to create a following, to create people to listen to their music or um, in their own terms, and let's say it in heavy metal fashion, by their own hands or create the brand. So the truth kind of is, unless you have a huge plan and a team of people behind you um, and some money and you know exactly how to market what you're doing, which let's be honest, is not most people, You need to do the lion's share of work yourself before any label or booking agent or whoever might look at you. I.e. you have to do the groundwork to get to a point where somebody would work with you. Your average booking agent, and I say this to people repeatedly because I do actually do a bit of booking, is that a percentage of nothing is nothing. So if you're in a band without any fee, the amount of work it takes to move, let's say, five people in a band from Sweden to Berlin to play, to get collected, um, to arrange the back line, to tell the local promoter what their requirements are for the backstage, their technical requirements, who's the front of house, who's doing sound, um, who are you shipping the merch, all of these kind of things which very often are left to a booking agent. That The same amount of work is required for a band who have a 10,000 euro fee for a festival as for a band who have a 500 euro fee festival. But the band, of course, with no fee is not making anyone any money. It's just an example. It's a slightly old-fashioned and antiquated example. But certainly... 
in the meeting rooms, let's call them the A&R and the artist representative meetings that go on about who might a label look at, um, you know, who might they be interested to sign. And I think this goes for the mainstream as well as, um, let's call it the more mainstream rock and metal. I'm going to get into maybe why it's a little bit different for the under underground. But for the mainstream of heavy metal, they will look at those things. Um, they will say, well, um, you know, how many... The band kind of has to get to a place that once upon a time, the, that work was done by a label and you got there by album two or album three, maybe in the 70s or the 80s. And you're allowed to kind of have a, have a near miss with your first album and you know, try and grow into your second and third, which maybe hit home. But now that very first one, in fact, the one before even a label picks you up, has to have something of a viral um, load to it. A label will go, well, how many Instagram followers do they have? Is any of the band a star? And I'm doing that little parenthesis rabbit ears there, <clears throat> which, of course, is helpful for a podcast. But what I mean by that is, is there somebody there to take on the work of social media, to post the backstage video, videos, to do all that 75% now, which is the grunt work. Um, all of this was once the job of the promo department at a label, um, who, you know, these do more or less exist. Um, also independent, um, I suppose, independent companies who I sense, well, I would say kind of more push emails. But, you know, one thing most people don't really realise is the click-through rate for most promo emails is, I think, less than 3% as far as I know, with even less people clicking through to music. It seems that our attention spans are so shredded or we're so relatively disinterested. And I do also understand that amongst the modern deluge of music. It's insane. I am signed up to some promo. Um, let's call them um, promo platforms. Um, and there is just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of newer albums coming out every week. The whole... Um, I think the pandemic and the lockdown, of course, accelerated some of this. But for young bands, we're still excited. The the, the new and growing um, wall for them to try and climb over to escape into the promised land of having some form of a career of, of being a musician. It's the, the enormity, the size of this wall is not quite yet revealed to them. But, you know, most bands who hire digital PR companies are horrified at the click-through rates. Um, let's be honest, one viral or viewed video of a band member doing singing along to a song backstage, or maybe, you know, this is how I warm up to the fastest Metallica riff. Um, you know, you pick a band who always gets clicks and then you do something that can ta be tagged along in the algorithm with them, etc. In rehearsal, this will unfortunately gain you way more views than any, um, you know, unmusical things will reach these these unmusical things will reach far more people i mean do you online go to read interviews with bands who does i mean i certainly don't a video interview perhaps so what you're required to do right now these days as being a musician is also be your own video editor your own pr and marketing your own booker to a point until somebody might want to maybe book you i'm your own photographer your own um basically curating and trying to figure out how to create the brand, so to say. And I hate those words because, look, that's not the world I came from. I came from the underground world. Um, and lest we add all of that, all of these different 12 different job titles for no money, no recompense, because um, you won't be gaining anything back really from streaming numbers. Or unless, you know, you want to game or create covers for tips or maybe you have only fans, I don't know. But you still have to build an audience first. And that's one of the most complicated things now. 
Now, of course, what I'm saying is more commentary about mainstream music or mainstream rock and metal. Few labels will touch a band, though, without any presence. Of course, if you are Mugwa um, and you're on Northern Heritage and you don't do press and you can simply rely on the greatness of your music, okay. Um, but they still got big on word of mouth, i.e. the um, greatness of their music being spread between people online, people going fucking hell have you heard this band yet so it somehow dovetails with what i'm saying on one level with how big and um, playing the game online is but if you but if you are talented enough to find other people to play that game for you i suppose that's the difference but the sad truth is that for mainstream rock um i'll give an example is i watched a download special now sometimes it's a hate watch um, and because I don't recognize any of the bands playing, I'm a traditional metalhead. I'm not interested in Bury Tomorrow, Shine Down, Control the Storm, Tremantai, A Day to Remember, who all seem to have the same interchangeable um, band members. And whoa, 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 kind of riffs. Now, look, they aren't aimed at me, and a cursory glance reveals. As I said, the same kind of songs, the same kind of image. But I guarantee you each band has mastered social media. There's a big, young following and at least one member who is in charge of constantly streaming stories, backstage moments. Who knows? Maybe even a cookery program, a keep fit program. Maybe one of them is into weight. Well, you know, this is the kind of thing about these new bands. They're into weightlifting. They're into all sorts of other things. And they stream pretty much their entire lives. You could look at a good example as Dragon Force, Herman Lee, um, the guitar player of Dragon Force, I mean, has literally created this other side economy that I would imagine is bigger than Dragon Force for him, um, or Matt Heavey from Trivium, who they would appear to me to basically stream their whole lives from making coffee in the morning to, oh, someone dared me to make an aha cover. This is what I'm going to do today. And people tip them for it. Um, more power to them, I think, but this avenue is open to a very f small amount of people. But it's certainly true that most labels now will look for um, what a band's presence is before they even contemplate signing them. And back in the day, this was left to the um, the PR department of a label to break a band forward. But the but the the idea now is that a band has to have all of that in place. And of course, you know, back in the day, there was a lot more money in the music industry and they were throwing $100,000, $200,000 at bands in the 70s and 80s. And there was a lot more professionals around them trying to guide them. You had producers helping them songwrite and this and that and the other. And believe me, there's an awful lot of labels now who are asking bands, well, can you give us your home recorded album for free? Um, and we'll just see what happens. But um, it feeds into something. It all feeds into something someone on my YouTube commented, which I thought was very revealing and very interesting. Um, you know, maybe I'm speaking. Am I speaking a little bit too fast? I don't know. I suppose I should have internalized that sentence. Um, but back in the day, back in the day, people identified with bands or characters. For example, Robert Smith of The Cure. He understands me. Morrissey of The Smiths speaks for me through his lyrics. James Hetfield understands my anger, my alienation, whoever it may be. The band you identified with um, the band you chose as your subcultural identification was um, your, if you want to call it, emotional lifestyle choice. But something has clearly changed. And maybe this is a much more interesting premise for an entire podcast, because it, I think it's something much more societal and is really about, I suppose, a microcosm or a slightly different angle of the things that we discuss in the podcast anyway, about how a decade of social media derangement, derangement, or 
let's not call it derangement, whatever it is. The, the world we now inhabit after 10 years of social media has changed things so dramatically. One of those things that it has clearly changed is that now, as this person commented on my YouTube, bands are the backdrop to an, to an individual's life, to their brand choice, to their brand building. Um, I.e., if everyone is essentially their own brand, everybody is kind of externally living, everybody is trying to push out their own and whatever their own social media presence is. And, you know, I'm as guilty as this as, well, I'm maybe slightly less guilty than your average 14-year-old TikToker. But, I mean, I have over 10,000 people follow me on Instagram and I know that it helps to gain, um, to get people across to listen to the podcast, to, you know, if you do want to sell a shirt, whatever else, dropping merch, whatever, as kids say it now. But <clears throat> if everyone is their own brand and... That's that thing that also labels are trying to identify with. They're trying to identify bands who do have and that within them, within them, ready to bring out, ready to exploit, so to say. Um, if, and if we put this in a terrible way, the word brand, which is horrible, but music has become the backdrop for a dance on TikTok or closer to home, the background music to um, weightlifting, to gaming, to your story on Instagram, to your reel. It's... It clearly ties in with the modern social media sense of ultra-individualism. And I mean in a kind of only fans sort of world way, world weary way. Um, who can blame some younger people if they think this? Creating their brand identity is going to be the only job they get in a world going down the pan economically. And also um, a job they can see quite clearly. Um, there are more millionaires before the age of 15 now than, well, at any time in history, because that just never happened in history. You can bypass the whole adult work, drudgery, life um, by creating your own brand before the age of 15. Um, and this is this traditionally was a time when teenagers were, I suppose, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, getting into music, identifying with bands. But now it seems that the, um, let's call it, it's more of a renter's market in the sense that, in the sense that bands are having to understand they are the backdrop for other people's identification. What this essentially does, I think, which has happened over the last 10 or 20 years, is remove or reduce music to that 10, 20, 30 second um, snippet that's happening behind somebody else's a snapshot of their life. What it does is reduce music to an afterthought. Music is the, music is the background noise to your life rather than being the soundtrack to it, if that makes sense. If that makes sense? Let me know in the comments because I think this is a pretty um, interesting, well, let me know in the comments, like the person who did actually let me know in the comments that that was their idea, you know, and I thought this is a very pertinent, very clever observation of modern society. And this is one of the reasons why music seems, I suppose, so less important to younger people. As I said before on the podcast, anecdotally, my friends who have kids, trying to engage them to listen to not just a song, but a whole album, it seems to just fall on deaf ears. They just don't really have any engagement with it. It's too long a process, too involved. Um, my friend's young son, he's trying to get him to learn how to play the bass, and the kid is asking, well, who would I play with? Now, I remember being 13, 14, 15, and everyone wanted to be in a band because not only was being in a band a way of standing on a stage, getting a little bit more of a light shined on you if you were an awkward, uncomfortable kid, but who knows, maybe you could even meet a girl or impress a girl. Anyway, you do wonder about 
how things are going to pan out for young people in those respects, you know. Um, I mean, as a complete side comment to that, and I, like I said, I do think that that is a really interesting observation, the fact that music is now the backdrop. It's not the soundtrack to young people's lives. Um, I think it's it, it, it makes so much sense. And when you listen to some, you listen, I did actually go and listen to Billie Eilish. I watched Billie Eilish at Coachella and it struck me how childish is this music? It sounds like cartoon music. It sounded like really a music for 12 year olds. And you kind of realize, as I said before, that great interview with um, the band The Black Keys on Joe Rogan. Mainly it's just the drummer's three-hour uh, one-man show. He's hilarious. And he just said that's the, one of the problems with the modern music industry is that it is enthralled to the cliques of children. Um, and therefore you get this music that is just so caught up in being, as I said, the backdrop for being a pre-adolescent. Um, it's not really the soundtrack to your um, adulthood or your emotional development or you're moving into your late teens or whatever else. Hey, what did I just say? I was listening to Billie Eilish. I observed it um, purely for philanthropic, anthropological, cultural reasons. Indeed. Well, I think that might be a very good, interesting podcast discussion. And so I might flesh it out. But a few of the things that have changed over the years, one of them is, um, and these are, like I said, a bit scattergun, a bit all over the place. And I'm sure there's something I'm going to miss, but jamming or rehearsing. First things um, first, there are some important contexts to address. The first one being that on average in the 1970s, most families take home pay. Industrial wage was growing. People could, people could afford, um, especially if you're in the US, a basement with some instruments. Now, this is a kind of a, a, an observation that um, I never really thought about before. But um, a friend of mine said when he came over here to visit, he goes, none of you guys have basements. How did you ever form bands? And I went, that's very interesting. Because in the United States, especially in the 1970s, there was a kind of sense of upward mobility. Um, and this sort of post-World War II dream of the American dream, I guess, for your average worker was in full swing, combined with, of course, the growth of 70s rock. And let's consider it the general mood of optimism right, on some level, despite the hangover of the Vietnam War, the continuing Cold War issues, the mood across the US bowl accounts, and this may be just anecdotal um, anecdotal nonsense, was positive. Let's call it a bit Van Halen. And I think this inspired many young people to go and take up instruments. Um, while the UK, for example, was maybe mired in debt, there were race riots, the IMF was called into the country in the early 1970s, huge joblessness and unemployment. Let's see even if Let's say even if 70s glam was the sonic pushback against the gloom of the industrial horizon, the opening chords of Black Sabbath somehow seemed to define the mood in the UK. Despite this, I would have to observe, people were not back then saddled with huge debts. Being a student graduating in the early 1980s, or that was a bit of a complex thought, I suppose. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that there were a couple of different moods of inspiration that were moving through the 1970s, which inspired kids to take up instruments, take up arms. You know, one was perhaps pushing back against the gloom and agitation of the state, pushing back, back against the news. The birth of a new kind of teen movement in the 1960s carried across into the 1970s. But being a student graduating in the early 1980s and picking up that axe as you did and hearing Venom, a la Kerry King or Dave Mustaine, you were not, as kids are now often emerging in a form of financial slavery, saddled with huge debts. And I think this is an important economic consideration. Well, that's a rather complex 
um, all over the place thought that I had there. But what I'm trying to say is when we think about these things is that living in 1981 as new British heavy metal broke as a hero's like a Mustaine or a Headfield set out was cheaper. The idea that you might get on the property ladder or have an apartment in a capital city as a, de- as a young, hungry, developing artist was not as outlandish as it seems now. Um, whereas now, where artists are driven from most capital cities across the Western world by, for example, the BlackRock ideology of debt. Um, it's just an important consideration, I think, um, when you look at the development of being a musician through the decades. And one of that is that there's the separation of peoples, but that life might have been a little bit simpler, a little bit easier, definitely a lot poorer, but the people were not saddled with huge personal debt. And I think this gave them a certain freedom on some level to try and uh, start a band. And this was the aspiration of many, many young people. Um, It's just a consideration. It's a rather all over the place thought, but there are older folks I've chatted to who will say to me things like, oh, well, these kids don't want to tour. Believe me, um, bands do now and they would love to be able to live from music. But that route well, that was open to a band, let's say from 1977 to 1983 or even to 1988 of charitable growth or at least the optimism that it might happen, that you might break through. This dream does not really exist anymore. Most kids are brutally honest of the assessment that being a musician is not going to make you any kind of a living. Well, not unless you're, of course, an expert at the 12 other things you're expected to be, well, an expert at, to um, compensate that musical journey. But the chances of making it to that place on songwriting alone is virtually nil. It was not as pessimistic. It's not as, um, let's say this, It was not as pessimistic in other decades, is what I can say with certainty, is that there seemed to be a way through once upon a time. Um, That was a rather complicated thought. I'm not sure that I really quite explained that properly. This is the reason why sometimes you write some notes. What I was trying to say there was um, there are different financial concerns, I think, for kids right now, and that um, being saddled with huge personal debt was maybe less of a concern in 1982 than it is in 2022. Um, but honing their skills every day, bands jamming or rehearsing, you couldn't fake being a tight rehearsed band in 1976 or 1986 like you can now. I know plenty of stories from engineers who tell me about bands who arrive now in the studio, if they do even go to a studio, who have never even been in the same room together. Um, you know, they expect digital miracles of cut and paste. This was not possible back in the day. You had to be as tight as you sounded. And we all know the stories of Metallica living in a house today, playing every day, dedicated in the rehearsal room every night. This, I think, doesn't exist anymore. Most people have given into the convenience of um, headset Zoom rehearsals or just trading files. And it all adds to the sort of anti-human nature of an awful lot of modern music, and I think that modern heavy metal suffers from that. Um, it's also one of the reasons why rock or metal music is just not, it's not a viable thing in the mainstream anymore. And this returns to what I just said a while ago, is that it's very hard to market five individuals to young people anymore. They want, as I said, the Billy Irish, the, Aller, the uh, Billy, Billy Irish, Billy Eilish, that's a good name for Billy Eilish covers band from Ireland, um, or maybe some sort of Irish nationalistic uh, covers band of Billy Eilish. Anyway, um, They want names because they're easily marketable. That is the brand of that person. It's one of the reasons why rock and metal doesn't really work in the mainstream anymore because it's just too complicated to identify four or five different people with an album, with long songs, who don't have dances, etc., etc. 
Hey, it's another reason why I guess back in the day prog music was so popular in the 1970s because people understood the craft of being a musician a bit more. Of course, punk fundamentally changed things, but don't tell me that the Ramones weren't a rehearsed, well-oiled um, war machine, a finely holed rock and roll machine. As people slip into modes of remote living, so bands rehearse remotely, trading files, adding their own parts alone. I've often said this is not how you make metal or rock, as you need the human interaction. And personally, I would not make a record like this, but many, many people do. Ah, you know, nothing wrong with it, but I know bands who jam on Zoom with headphone sets and write like this, and they never even really meet to rehearse or to make an album. So I think this reality just reflects the way the modern world is or has become, how people are cocooned in the burbs working alone. It's not how I want to make metal, but there are bands out there who, like I said, never meet. And write, they never write together. They mix, inde- mix independently. And if they play gigs, maybe they only meet for an hour or two before that for a tour. Um, it's one of the reasons bands back in the day had this us-against-the-world, die-hard mentality, if you ask me. They lived and breathed their music. The Iron Maidens of this world could never, I think, exist in a modern climate. We are all too separated and disparate. It's one of the reasons, as I said, why in a mainstream capacity, rock and metal has dropped off the radar commercially. The human context experience is just less important as a cultural sense, I think, than it was. The band itself was seen as your job. This is what you worked at back in the day. And someday it might repay you or reward you. And as I said, what might reward you now is a brand deal or a gaming deal or being sponsored by um, some other company external to music. You're certainly not generally going to make it from streaming music unless it's uh, hundreds of millions of streams. But this, the idea that this is how a band feels um, right now is almost a complete fallacy. Primordial is not a professional band on any level. Could we ever have been? Um, it's unlikely considering the cost of living in a country like Ireland over the last 20 years. But all musicians now work. There is no choice Again, upward mobility. Bands at one stage had that. So when people in the industry go, oh, oh, this band doesn't want to tour, what they have to realise is that they're also juggling um, their future. They're juggling the prospects of, well, how do I pay the rent when I get home? And now you've heard me in the podcast talk about the growing costs of being in a band um, and how an awful lot of bands are not even making 50% of what they did pre-pandemic because flights are now four, five, six, seven hundred euro. Um, and... There is no um, there is no concept of some sort of base minimum wage for any band who playing at a festival at a certain level. Um, there's no there's no sliding scale rule of you have this many streams, therefore you should be guaranteed each musician to walk home with two hundred and fifty euro per day, like you know for, um, crew people are, for example. So you can walk home with less than everyone else's musician now. Anyway, that's a different story, isn't it? You bought gear back in the day. You invested in your backline. You bought that van. You played anywhere you could. Um, you know, that's the romantic vision of how a band is, of course. And that does still exist. I mean, I just was looking on Instagram at Blood Incantation doing a two-week tour um, um, across Europe. And here's a band, a great band, who are g- blowing up in the metal scene quite, you know, and it's quite righteously. They're a band who deserve it. And there's a few sold-outs next to their... Um, you know, next to their uh, shows. And my friend Daniel from Killtown books them. And this is the old-fashioned way of how this band has got big. But um, most bands are... This is a very romantic vision. And it doesn't really exist quite the same in the mainstream, I think. Most bands who are doing that are hawking merch to get to the next city. And that dream, that, that romantic vision of what a band is, never really dies. 
It's just making it through the gate or over the wall, if you want, to the promised land, to the USNDA, um, to open pasture. That gate is so small now. The reality is making it on those terms depends on many other things. That romantic notion um, is encapsulated in Henry Rollins' Get in the Van, which I've mentioned again and again, which I would recommend going and listen to the audiobook of which he narrates um i've done that it exists and it's a beautiful romantic hard demanding slog and it's not dead yet but back in the day you made your demo in order to get signed you sent it around to a and people to try and make industry waves and this differed from the early to the you know early to the late 80s by let's say 1987 the early death metal bands had started selling their demos for three or four or five dollars and um, i ordered many many demos back in the 88 to 93 period even our own demo which came out in 1993 we sold maybe 1100 in the post at two and three and four pounds or five dollars it's a tiny small micro economy um, that you grew up with that generally you invest back into the band but you can print a couple of shirts and that kind of thing it's hard to say if bands even really do demos anymore at least pressing them and giving them to a and or people won't work as no one wants physical copies anymore um a friend of mine uh, once uh, you was trying to impress a label boss who was um, visiting here at a gig and made a huge big uh, tape box, a huge big wooden box full of shirts and CDs and tapes. And this was just at the edge of when all that was going out. And said label boss said to me, well, how am I supposed to get this through airport security? He could have just given me a USB clip. Well, now that US isn't even a USB clip. It's just a link to download. And you're pretty sure most people are not going to click on that link. But back in the day, you saved your money to go into a proper studio for a couple of hours. I think the first promotional demo was made for £50. And that was quite hard to save up. We didn't have any money. I know the guys in Primordial used to pick pick potatoes for £1 for one bag. And one bag was fucking huge. And they used to pick, uh, you had to fill a whole bag with potatoes for £1 back in the, whatever this was, 1991, 92, 93. And you did this all summer broke your back of course i didn't i mean how could a young liberace like myself ruin his cuticles with such hard work but you understand some of us had to do it but back in the day you saved your money to go into a proper studio and then you made your demo in order to get signed and you often had a manager or you know a fanager as people called them um or as people call them over the last decade or so but bands hustled themselves and a manager would pick them up. By the late 80s, you know, they were writing f- um, fan letters and um, all this kind of thing, you know, the independent fanzines. I guess this is where metal and the whole punk kind of DIY movement dovetailed into kind of sidestepping some of the mainstream um, rock, the mainstream way of um, representing your band and getting noticed. But the idea, for example, of signing with a talent agency, a big manager, even as a metal band um, or some kind of representative was par for the course if you listen to the amazing uh, Neat Records podcast Neat Records released Venom Raven Tigers of Pantang all sorts of stuff and just search Neat Records podcast on your Spotify or on your podcast platform it's great they discuss their links to the late 70s um, Newcastle or North of England talent scout scene so you can picture this the guy with the tight flannel suit breathing cigar smoke on you with a glass of cognac who had a troop of dancers a juggler two working class northern comedians who did um, men's clubs um, and a few stand-ups on his books or whatever and he's there going oh what's all the fuss about this band Def Leppard anyway 
this pretty much died away as we moved to the late 80s and 90s and it's certainly not the same now because and while I return to what I said at the top of the podcast a percentage of nothing is nothing so having a manager you know your laptop um, your laptop was a phone and you made calls to get gigs again the Black Flag Minneapolis hardcore documentary I linked before makes it very clear there were big bands stadium bands and covers bands often in the bars but finding a venue that would put on an independent band in some cities in the early 80s um, was a network of letter writing and phone calling the scene owes to punk rock I think and the ideal encapsulated for example by Husker Du in their um, their documentary or Minor Threat for example of course Iron Maiden did this up and down the UK and 79 and 80 and the Green Goddess which was their old van so it's not exclusive to punk rock but the but the indie touring circuit in the US and I would imagine in many European countries owes a lot to that one dude doing the fanzine who found a venue put on a show or two and you know bands like Sodom and that kind of thing they didn't really tour Europe till they got to Persecution Mania and there wasn't a thrash touring circuit in 83, 84 maybe to you know Destruction um, traded a gig with Living Death with Protector with whoever else but like I said, as we enter a new decade, and I mentioned it before, gentrification um, has changed cities incredibly. And the live music venue is kind of disappearing, I think. Venues disappeared. DJs kind of did in for much of them in the 90s and the noughties. Cheaper to set up and easier to make money on. But now, post-pandemic, you have to wonder how venues can survive. And of course, if there is any hint of restrictions coming back, they are done done. Before we get to the petrol issue, blah, 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 tour to 50 people a night on a 500 guarantee with a van and a place to sleep and eat, including that, becomes impossible. Like I said a couple of years ago, let's go to 2016. Touring to 50 people a night um, was economically viable. You could just about sell, if you sold 10, 15, 20 pieces of merch, get gas, sleep on someone's floor, 50 people a night, maybe at, you know, 10 euro, you could get a few hundred quid. Um, it would pay for the hire of a van and a driver. Now, I think with energy, cost of living, petrol and gas costs, that sort of low margin line is um, going to become kind of impossible. Anyway, we hit the 40 minute mark there. Um, it's a kind of a ramble all over the place. There's some there's some topics in there that I would like to explore further. I would really like to maybe get someone on to discuss the idea of how music essentially has become um, the backdrop to our brands, whereas once it was the soundtrack to our lives. That's something very interesting, something I might bring back up in a further podcast. So maybe we can consider this sort of ramble across the different, um, you know, uh, the different jobs that you need to do as a musician. I think now um, what you're required to do uh, as a musician in 2022 as opposed to 1992 or 82, you've so much, much other things that once upon a time, bands were given huge sums to make videos someone edited the video the pure department um you know hawked the video around mtv hoping to get a good slot bands really rehearsed and concentrated on playing and writing and getting out there honing their stagecraft but that seems to be less and less of an importance to all of the other now peripheral things which you know um which a label or which musicians need to use as their tools to somehow exploit so to speak that horrible word the brand um because it's such a crowded and crazy marketplace very few bands escape out the mugwa or blood incantation way now of course i'm kind of talking more about the mainstream rock metal um audience in general not really you know underground stuff but at the same time it is clear that 
your average musician who's just coming up, maybe even as an acoustic singer, songwriter or something like this, needs to have their game honed on so many other fronts. Um, And, you know, we've all seen those musicians who, as I said, make their money from a gaming channel. They're up making coffee. They're doing cookery channels. They're doing all sorts of other things. And you are required to edit your own videos, to be your own promo department, so to speak. And so that's what it is, whether you like it, whether we like it or not. Um, unless you're very, very lucky in a very small percentage of minority, this is the game that we have to play. And it is a game that is fundamentally opposed to creativity, to art, to being human with each other and all of those kind of things that I think are essential for creating um, rock and metal and proper bands. Now, thankfully, there's enough great bands out there that I'm not that worried. But I do think it speaks to why maybe metal and rock just has so little resonance in a kind of infantilized mainstream world that is only really interested in music, as I said, as a backdrop to um, a 20 minute, 30 second snippet of your brand, your life. Anyway, my friends, episode 113 of Agitators Anonymous podcast. I'm Alan Averill. I'm off to some festivals shortly um, and we'll make some reports and podcasts about those. Until then... Planet Satan over and out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.